Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the voice of the Son that has authority to give life. I pray, Lord, that we would hear that voice this morning more strongly. Uh, Lord, we, we so underestimate its power. And yet, Lord, when we will hear it on that day, there will be no underestimating its power. For we shall live and the dead shall be raised. And we pray that you would open our ears and uh, open our eyes and open our hearts, especially to your presence this morning. Amen. <clears throat> it's good to be with you all today. I, we were gone just for one weekend last weekend, and, and it's, uh, I don't like being away from Light of Christ on Sunday morning, and it's always good to be back, even when the break is rather short. Um, I have a little bit of a chest cold today, so I was hoping that would give my voice more gravity and weight, uh, but I think it's just making it sound weak right now, so I'm hoping you'll just bear with me and <laughs> pretend that I have more power in my authority. In my I woke up with that deep voice, you know, and my kids were impressed, and I thought, oh, that's some benefit anyway, but... <clears throat> So this is the first day of ordinary time. Now, if you're like me, you may like, I, I like the, the word ordinary sometimes. <laughs> sometimes a little boredom in life, depending on which stage you're in, is welcome. <laughs> but there's nothing ordinary about ordinary time. It's the season of Pentecost. It's, the, it's, it's now the time to let the Holy Spirit continue to work in our lives in the way that he wants in the mission of this body and in your life. And um, I love this season, and, and, and what we're doing now is we're going to go back to the start to some degree. We're going to go back in the Gospel of John more towards the beginning. We kind of aligned our reading of the Gospel of John with the church liturgical calendar, so because we just went through Holy Week, you know, we were kind of at the end of the story. Now we're going to go back to the beginning a little bit. And uh, we're going to start in chapter 5 and we're going to kind of move forward and we're going to focus as much as we can during the summertime on some of the teaching of Jesus. And John is a very special gospel in this regard that we hear Jesus speaking at length in the gospel of John uh, in some unique forms. If you compare them to the other three gospels, the beauty of having four gospels is you get four perspectives. You know, for some people that causes a little bit of concern because there are some differences. But, you know, the more witnesses to something, the better. And we have four testimonies of the life of Jesus. And we get to hear him speak differently. Um, and John uh, gives us an entree into the teaching ministry of Jesus in a very special way. And, and um, it requires some patient reading and listening. And what I want to focus on in our text today, which is lengthy, is really this. Jesus has the authority to give life. And it's not the kind of authority that comes from like a public servant who it's in their job description. I'm talking about the kind of authority that lava has when it breaks through the earth. It's unstoppable authority. It's the authority that will do what it will do. That's what kind of authority Jesus has. It's not a question. It's not a trump card that he may or may not play. He will give life. This is kind of authority that the Father is giving. In our culture, uh, we reject authority. 
We've, we've spent years undermining authority. We don't like authority. We don't like the word authority. And we have lost the value and power and beauty of this word. Think of somebody who's in chains unjustly, and they meet somebody with authority to set them free, a good person that has the authority to set them free. That's Bible authority. That's the authority of a good king, somebody who's going to fix what's broken. Jesus has been given authority. Now, I want to provide a little bit of context here as we start in chapter 5. If you are reading through the Gospel of John with us, which I hope you are, um, this is kind of the start of a new section where for the next five chapters, you're going to follow Jesus through the Jewish festivals. It's really beautiful, actually. If you want to know something about Jewish festivals, now is time to start reading about that. Look on Wikipedia or, you know, your Bible dictionary. There's all kinds of free stuff that you can just look up some of these biblical festivals, and it'll help you understand what's going on here. Um, in the first verse of chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, it might be helpful to follow along with me there. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And they're in Jerusalem. And there were a lot of people there because there were three major festivals. Now, if you're not familiar with Jewish festivals, uh, they're very special. Um, they're liturgical celebrations. So it be like Christmas, you know, except... These Jewish festivals were ordained by God. God said in the Old Testament, the history of the Jewish people, he said, I want you to celebrate these particular festivals which honor certain special things that I've done in, in history. So for, for many of us are very familiar with the Exodus event, for example. This is where uh, God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember that story? In that story, uh, God shows himself to Israel in a new and powerful way by being their savior and their redeemer, their deliverer. So powerful was that event that God said every single year, I want you to celebrate that event. That's what we call Passover. And there's a way that I want you to celebrate that, and I want you to do it every year because that helps you to know me. That's why Jesus said that. He said, I want you to know who I am. I want you to experience my power in a good way. I want you to know that you're my people and I love you and that I'll do anything for you. And I want you to be reminded of that, not just by reading about it. I want you to celebrate it. I want you to feast and eat and do things in worship together as a community with your families. Festivals, in, those Jewish festivals are very, very precious, even to this day. And, of course, they form the basis of our own liturgy that we celebrate here. Um, love to teach on that sometime, actually. So there were certain of those festivals where God said, I want you to celebrate them in Jerusalem if you can. So um, if you can, celebrate this particular festival in Jerusalem where the temple is. I want, I want the whole family together. And, uh, and so during those particular festivals, Passover was one of them, um, 
the, the, the crowd would swell in Jerusalem and it was a very festive occasion and a lot of people were there and you can see that Jesus, when he was there, was rather electrifying because when there's a crowd and there's a guy like Jesus there, you know, people's ears perk up and they want to see what's going on and the authorities who are a little skeptical, they get a little nervous. And so this happens to most likely be the festival of Pentecost that we just celebrated, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. At the time, Pentecost was a special way of commemorating the giving of the Torah, the law, from Mount Sinai. And Jesus and many of the Jewish people were there along with the Jewish rulers. And this, again, we're in chapter 5, early on in Jesus' ministry, in some ways is another step in the direction of Jesus unfolding his mission to people in a way that they could understand. That's one of the reasons why so much of what Jesus does is integrated into these Jewish festivals. Because if Jesus had just dropped out of heaven with a neon sign, they wouldn't have known what neon was to begin with, but said, I am God, or I am, you know, it, there's just, that's completely unmerciful and very confusing and would be, you know, uh, incomprehensible. The Jewish people wouldn't have been able to metabolize that. This is very similar, you know, with all these babies coming and we get, to, we get to congratulate the Olsons on another grandbaby. It's just so many babies. I love it. It's just so wonderful. But you can see that babies take time to grow. Why is that? Because it takes time for them to say, wow, these people really love me. You know, babies aren't born with a gene that says, this is the definition of mom. This is the definition of dad. They learn that day after day, year after year. This is what mom and dad are. And Jesus, well, is following the pattern that God set. God didn't do the same thing either. That's why there's history. Because it takes time for God to say, this is what I'm like. And Jesus is doing the same thing now. He's saying, this is what I'm like. And so he draws close to the Jewish people in, as a Jewish man himself and begins to use the Jewish framework for unpacking who he is and what his mission is over time. So you will see that in chapter 5, there's an event that causes a crisis. And this event, some of you may be familiar with. I'm not going to read the whole account, but again, it's in the beginning part of chapter 5. It's about the healing of a guy that's been sick for 38 years. And there's a pool on, in uh, north, northeast of the old city of Jerusalem. Father Eric may be able to visit there when he goes. still there. Um, the pool of Bethesda. And the waters were known to have some kind of medicinal purpose or healing value. And if you could get in them, you could be healed. But there's a catch. You had to be the first one in. And uh, that's hard for people who are lame or a little slow. <laughs> and this guy was probably, understandably, a little grumpy. And uh, Jesus heals him. He doesn't even make him go in the water. Interestingly, the, uh, the, the, the tradition here has this text used in baptismal contexts. That water doesn't save you. This living water saves you. It's an interesting metaphor there. And uh, so Jesus heals him, and there's a problem. Right? You'd think that would be a great thing, but there's always a hang-up here, and that's that he heals him on the wrong day. Um, he heals him on the Sabbath. Now, 
the Jewish leaders are upset about this. And you may think this is just really nitpicky, but there's a lot actually more to it than that, and I can't go into all of it here. But, you know, the Jewish culture had developed over 2,000 years of reading God's Word, and they cared about it. I mean, God make us care about His Word as much as the Jewish people have cared about His Word. All right, and when God says, don't do something, the Jewish people said, okay, we won't do it. You know, why don't Jewish people drive their car on the Sabbath? That just makes no sense. Well, God said, don't make fires. That's why. And if God says not to make fires, then don't make them. You know, Jewish people are working out the implication of what it means to be God's people. And this is where things go a little haywire because they were missing sight of something. The Jewish people said that God, they knew that God rests on the Sabbath. All right? You can read about that right back from the book of Genesis. God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he made it holy because he rested. Therefore, he requires Israel also to rest. What a blessing. The Romans thought they were lazy. You know, we, we are so grateful that God said, I want you to rest. It's human. It's what I did. But the Jewish people knew that there were two things that had to happen on the Sabbath. God's resting on the Sabbath did not mean that he fell asleep. Otherwise, the world would fall apart. God did two things on the Sabbath. He gave life and he judged. God alone on the Sabbath could heal and God alone on the Sabbath could judge people who died on the Sabbath. Right? When you died on the Sabbath, it, you just didn't wait. God alone heals on the Sabbath. God alone judges on the Sabbath. Now you can imagine, if you know the story, why Jesus is irritating the leadership because on healing the Sabbath and saying, I have the authority to give life and I have the authority to judge, who says that? God. It's not just because they were irritated and nitpicky, it's because they recognized what Jesus was saying. And that's why in verse 16 and 17, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Only God does these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them even more shockingly, my father is working until now on the Sabbath. My father is working, and I also am working. And therefore, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. That was blasphemy. No mortal Jew had ever uttered those words ever until that very moment. No Jew ever would. No faithful Jew would ever say, I alone will do what God is doing by working on the Sabbath. Do you see why that was so controversial? Very powerful. And that's why John says, and this is John's commentary here in, chat, in verse 18, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and that had to do with the man carrying his mat, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
And if there's one thing that Jews knew not to do, it was that. If there's one thing that Jews knew not to do, it was that that was idolatrous and blasphemous. And here's Jesus doing and saying what only God does and says. Do you see why the authority issue is so significant? So now in the verses that follow, and don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of them uh, because in, in the remaining time we won't. But Jesus begins a teaching ministry. Okay, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. And oftentimes Jesus will introduce his significant teaching by that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen in Hebrew. That's what amen means. Amen, amen, ami, ani omerlecha. Truly, truly, I say unto you. It's the doubling of the word, and then he says, I am saying to you. This is a very authoritative statement. Jesus is saying, This is true, and I, as the author, I am authorized to make this statement. So here's Jesus with the Jewish rulers and the people around him, and now he's going to say how it can be that he can do these things. And um, you can see the pressure of opposition bearing down on Jesus now as he reveals himself. Interestingly, um, the, uh, the Jewish people have a prayer that they pray in the synagogue. It's, a, it's called the benediction. It's part of the 18 benedictions. These are very ancient. In fact, the Lord's prayer in, s- in some respects is kind of echoes the 18 benedictions which were said in the synagogue at this time. And you can imagine the Jewish people praying this prayer and now trying to wrap their head around Jesus. But listen to this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. This is what Jewish people would be praying in the synagogue. You art mighty forever, O Lord. You resurrect the dead. You are mighty to save, sustaining the living and loving kindness, resurrecting the dead in abundant mercies. You support the falling. You heal the sick. You set free the captives and keep your faith to them that sleep in the dust. Who is like you, owner of the powers over life and death, and who may be compared to you, O king, sending away death and reviving again and causing salvation to sprout forth? You are surely believed to resurrect the dead. Blessed be you, O Lord, who revives the dead. Could that not be a more adequate description of Jesus himself? Of course, that benediction is reverberating with prophecies from Isaiah that that Jesus will use as well. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, and then he's going to say, I have a relationship with the Father that gives me authority to do those things. Jesus says, I'm not backing down by the pressure to deny healing and restoration to that man. No, says Jesus. In fact, he's going to go on to press the point. He's going to go on to say, of all the things that I could do to demonstrate my power. I mean, Jesus could have put rabbits out of hats. You know, he could have done Shazam magic tricks. That's, Jesus had zero interest in any of that. Jesus is not a magician. That's so far from his agenda. Jesus says, I'll tell you of all the things that I could do, I'm going to do these two things. I'm going to give life, and I am going to judge the dead. I mean, those are the two most crucial moments in any person's being. 
It's the calling forth of life in us, and it's the moment of judgment when we face God for eternity. That, that's us. I mean, of all the little details of our lives that matter, these are the two most things that we want the most. We want to know, will our lives flourish? Will we be who we were created to be? And on judgment day, will we enter into eternal life and fellowship with the Father? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be right there with you in those two things. Exactly. I'm going to cause life to flourish in you, and when you stand before God, sinner that you are, I will stand with you as your advocate because I was a human. I died in your place, I rose again, and now I can stand with you at that very moment when all of your eternal existence hangs in the balance and you come up short. Amen. Amen, brother. Are you... <laughs> Are you not happy that at that moment Jesus will be standing with you? And don't you want to know him now so that then it'll just be okay? Jesus says, I'm going to come for that purpose. And he can do it, he says, because I have a relationship with the Father. And here I hope you'll start to see synergy, collaboration between God's relationship, between Jesus' relationship with his Father and our relationship with Jesus and through him to the Father. So the relationship um, moves into verse 19. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So there's so much that we could say about this, but one thing we see is the humility of Jesus. Now, don't be... Uh, alarm that what Jesus might be saying is that somehow he is in some respect some, something uh, less than God. Right? I can't bring the full weight of that conversation into this text. From his human side, he has humbled himself and taken the form of a servant. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. All right? But he is fully divine. And this is a perfect relationship. So Jesus is not like an apprentice coming up into something that he didn't know before. This was a perfectly established relationship where Jesus is absolutely able to see all of who God is and he's able to recognize everything that God the Father does and he's able to imitate it perfectly in this venue which he is taking over for himself. So I hope you can see that Jesus is not diminishing himself in any way. He, as a human, in his humility, in his servanthood, in his obedience, has said, I alone have a relationship with the Father that I can disclose to you, that I can share with you, that I can bring to you. Thank God that he's there with that relationship. So the son does nothing apart from God, which means that if you want to know God, you can look at Jesus and know everything that's possible to know. The Bible's full of hymns to Jesus that say this, that he is the exact image of God in the flesh. We see God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, you can only know him by knowing Jesus, and Jesus will show you everything that you need to know about God. That's the depth and perfection of this relationship. 
And Jesus says it so clearly. He says this is not just simply an arrangement, a tactic. This is grounded in love. Jesus says the Father shows him because the Father loves him. The Father, in verse 20, loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. Why? And here's the result. So that you may marvel. Do you marvel? Does this seem so abstract? Sometimes it does seem abstract. So that's why we have to metabolize Jesus' teaching kind of slowly. Because if you rush through it, you're like, I don't, I don't get it. But if you think about the fact that in Christ you have access to the fullness of God and that he's importing it right into you because he's in you and you're in him and all the good stuff is yours through Christ. That causes you to marvel. Sometimes there's just nothing to do right now. Let's just marvel. Have you ever just marveled? Greek there can be translated to be amazed. It's what happens when we worship. Jesus, I worship you. In you, I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm protected from punishment. I'm free to see your smiling face. I'm open to your word. I honor you. I love you. I'm amazed. I marvel. And I hope we never get over that. I hope we never, ever, ever lose the capacity to be marvelous in God's sight. And I'd like to think about that when we get together to worship. Like you, I have very hard days. I had a bad week last week. Jesus' voice was not the strongest voice in my head. But God says, but I'm here. I, I mean, I might be having a bad day, but Jesus never has a bad day. I might be wandering away, but Jesus is always right there to say I'm right here when you turn to me. And I can give you everything. Marvelous deeds. Jesus now goes on to say, not only do I have a special relationship that gives me authority to give life to you, but also I do marvelous things. And this is where, as we've already showed, Jesus now connects himself to the Father's actions. In verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life. Praise God just right there, but now I want to draw attention to what comes next. To whom he will. We skip over that to our disadvantage. All right, now I don't want us to get off into all kinds of theological rabbit trails here, but I, I have to state it this clearly. You're here because of God's will. That's just the long and the short of it. You can try to massage that truth all over the place, but at the end of the day, God willed you here, and that should give you great confidence. God gives life to whom he will. The lava flows wherever it wants. You know, I've seen videotapes of the lava in Hawaii. It's not stoppable. <laughs> you know, it's really not. It doesn't move very fast. But I wouldn't want to lay, lay down in front of it, you know. It's just, it's really impressive. Jesus gives life to whom he will. And when you confess, the Bible says that we confess the name of Christ because the Holy Spirit in us causes us to do it. Do you know that you're here because God wanted you here? You're here and you're having life right now because Jesus, like the lava, just says, I'm going to do it in you. And that is such a comfort to us. 
I give life to whom I will. The Father, now this is really fun. I like this because, um, and this of course is not my idea, it's Thomas Aquinas' idea, who was really smart. Um, he said, look at how in one part of the passage, <laughs> you know, um, God is doing the actions. God the Father says to God the Son, God says, I'm going to do stuff, and I'm going to show you what I'm doing. And the Son, in that way, kind of rests. Now it's reverse. Now God the Father is resting, and God the Son is acting on his behalf. Right? For as the Father, let's hear, yeah, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And that's what I was alluding to before, friends. Who else do you want to be your judge on that day but than the one who died on the cross to save you from your sins? Isn't that marvelous? What a gift to be forgiven of sins on that day and to know not only that, but he is ushering in us, uh, ushering us in to the home that he has prepared for us, as John says. If you take time to read the collect this morning, that's the collect that um, Father Eric wrote to emphasize that Jesus is preparing a home for us. And that home is characterized by the love of the Father for the Son, for the Son for the Holy Spirit, for the Trinity for us, for us for each other, the nuclear center of our eternal existence is love. Marvelous deeds. God, through Christ, gives life. God, through Christ, will be with us on the judgment day in the name of the Son. I could keep going into the next section, but this is dense, and I don't want to overwhelm us. I just want us to reflect on it I want us to honor the Son. Do you honor the Son? Do you know how you honor the Son, Jesus says? You honor the Son by hearing his words and believing in him. That's how you honor him. Nothing gives Jesus greater pleasure than when you say, I believe. I believe in you. I believe what you did for me. I believe what you're doing for me right now. And I believe what you're going to do for me on that day and in all the days that follow. That's how you honor the Son. One church teacher put it this way, faith has its seat not in the ears, but in the heart. To hear is to believe right here. That honors Jesus. And whoever honors Jesus will not be judged, but will pass from death to life. And if you haven't made that confession of faith, I urge you to. To stand before God's judgment throne without Jesus is incomprehensibly terrifying. It's to say that I have made a choice to reject the good gift of God. But friends, when you confess, Jesus has said, you are not only saved on that day, but you're saved even from this day forward. You can experience the joy of your salvation now in Jesus. It's not only for then, because Jesus has the authority to give you life. Today, honor him by believing. 
You may wonder, what is Jesus doing in my life? It doesn't seem like he's very authoritative, but he is, friends. He is bringing even your most challenging circumstances into conformity with his will to give you life. Give him permission. Don't rush on ahead of him. Don't cease to have faith and trust in him. Just let him be like that lava. <laughs> Raise it up in new earth in your life. He's got the authority and the power to do it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.